Hello everyone, welcome to Scraps, a podcast where we explore the stories behind people who drive science and scientific innovations. If you were ever wondering why we have a typo in our podcast name, it's because it's Sparks spelled backwards and Sparks being the sparks of scientific brilliance that we normally explore. We also thought it might also be a good way for all of you to remember us and one request from us to you is please ensure you interact with us on social media on twitter and facebook at, at podcast scraps or on linkedin we're going to start this episode with a disclaimer as it happens there are always some instances during a recording that snafus happen and we might very well decide to splice or edit out any mistakes that we make or sometimes our guests might actually have to redo but in today's episode we have deliberately tried to present things as is what's and all that's only because today's guest is a very very good friend of mine and we have collectively decided that sometimes the non-sterile frank conversation that people have are the ones that people need to hear this is part 1 of our special topic in science that i'm pretty sure no other science podcast has ever broached welcome to the show thanks arun and we're going to go a little bit off script with this episode we've all seen the renaissance of diversity and inclusion efforts in this past year and if you know me personally you know that i'm probably one of the most politically incorrect people out there This isn't to say that I'm disrespectful at all or I hope I'm not and I apologize if I have been to anyone in the past. I just come off sometimes as blunt. So Arun and I figured that we wanted to talk about the subject in a slightly different way than the HR manuals instruct us to do. We want to hear about the personal sides of biases. We want to hear personal experiences and perspectives. We will be respectful, but we hope to be able to have a meaningful conversation, not a lecture. We want we might take a a few shortcuts with our language in order to facilitate a clearer understanding and hopefully make a little bit of difference with this one. I'm sure that I have a lot to learn and I learn best when words aren't minced. I hope you'll join me in laughing our way through an important but all too touchy subject today. Our guest today is my brown brother and a very close friend uh Anil Achuta. Anil actually serves as the venture partner at TDK Ventures and prior to that was a consultant. Arun, uh, let's let's So venture partners have a very different uh meaning in the world of venture capital. So you should just say investment director. Okay. Anil is the investment director as you can see he corrects me uh right off the bat so we have a very very <laughs> frank relationship um and while it might be a very normal bio that you might see in most websites i think what makes anil interesting is his experience across science technology and the business of science but especially as an immigrant who has chosen america as his home and i think anil started his career as a chemical engineer um originally from india and emigrated uh, to to the united states with a masters degree at university of massachusetts and he then joined raper labs as a postdoc researcher and rose in the ranks to actually lead a team northeastern university you're watching this one up okay 
Let's stop the whole thing and let's redo this whole bloody thing again. Okay, I'm not going to go any of that. How do I introduce myself? It's probably so much easier. All right, let's do this now one more time. Stop, Jojo. We'll do it all over again. Sorry. I, so I'm. I'm. Just, we're just going to keep rolling. Yeah. Let, let's cut the venture partner thing. I'll tell you because venture partners are specifically brought into venture capital funds who are subject matter experts. Okay. So let's say I'm a neuromodulation guy and let's say NEA wants to do a deal in neuromodulation. NEA will bring me on as a venture partner and I will be given some X amount of capital to invest. So venture partner is a specific subdomain expert who would want to invest. I'm not a specific subdomain expert. I'm a generalist at, at TDK Ventures. So I think it's, it's, it has a very different meaning. Yeah. All right. That's good. And uh... So, tell us a bit more about. <laughs> this, is a good idea. this is a bad idea. Inv- inviting Anil onto the podcast. Uh, Not at all. This is priceless. <laughs> so, Anil, you're the only person who can talk over Arun so far. Anil, by the way. So, Anil, tell us about what got you here, man. Just so that I don't mess up anything about your background. Well, look, uh, I'm, I'm a chemical engineer by training, and uh, um, I really enjoy the the intersection of science and business. And uh, I'm in the business of science, and um, and and I really wanted to make an impact. I think that's the ultimate goal uh, for me to start in uh, in this trajectory. Was uh, you know, my dad and my cricket coaches always told me do epic stuff. Um, and I, I felt that uh, the one way to do epic stuff is to focus on creating products and, and, and new technologies. And that's what got me into R&D. And once I got into R&D, being a top line kind of guy, uh, I wanted to create more and more and more. And uh, one thing you realize uh, being in R&D, you know this, Arun, is that uh, it's very hard to scale yourself. And you cannot build more of you uh, at scale. So uh, either you have to work yourself to death or, you know, you have to find a way to make an impact in a more um, sustainable manner. And uh, the other uh, shortcoming I saw was that um, sometimes markets fizzle out. So you, you do something and, and you, you, you give your... Uh, blood, sweat, and tears onto a project, uh, whether it's uh, uh, early stage innovation in life sciences or otherwise. Um, And what you realize is three, four years down the line, you're probably the only one who cares about that project. And you probably know the most in the world, probably top three, uh, but you know, you might write a thesis on it and that's it, right? I, I think, I don't think my dad has read my thesis. You know, I've sent him my physical copy and he said he wrote he he read the acknowledgments. I was like, that's great. That's that's what you need to read, right? Yeah, and he sounds exactly like me because I stopped listening to whatever that you just said there when you started talking about cricket. Because as 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 is the tradition, when when two brown people get together, I think we need to talk about cricket and not so much in a traditional way to educate any of the Caucasian people from the from the United States. I think it's more to actually celebrate one of the biggest moments of our lifetimes, which is, which is, I mean, cheers. cheers. 
Can you tell everybody what that was? Well, um, India just won a series or a test series in Australia, um, and and uh, it's a, it's a momentous occasion because uh, they beat Australia in a ground called Gabba, uh, uh, and and um, uh, Gabba is uh, anyway. Gamma aminobutric acid. No, it's not. Uh, no. No, it's 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 a it's a cricket ground where it's supposed to be uh, never penetrated uh, before. Uh, uh, it's almost like a fort where Australia can just not be beaten because it's it suits the Australian cricketers, uh, their physique, their way of bowling or pitching, whatever you want to call it. Um, but India actually uh, down under they were um, at least five people short from their main team. And all these substitute guys on the bench kind of stepped up. And specifically, uh, I want to pay tribute to this one guy, Mohammad Siraj. Um, his father was an auto rickshaw driver uh, back home in India. And uh, so, auto rickshaws basically took took for the non-Indian audience. That's correct. And uh, he uh, basically grew up from nothing and uh, dedicated everything. Uh, for cricket and his dad died and uh, he didn't go to his dad's ceremony, but he actually went and got five wickets and got India to win the game. That was really emotional. That's pretty spectacular. I, I, I mean, I love all forms of sport and I'm learning more about cricket from my partnership with Arun and having Jared Kimber on the show, but it, it, it's just sport. It's universal. We, I feel that way about football. Some pe- American football. Some people, you know, everybody's got that team that they identify with and cheer for. I think it's it's perfect, and we should share more of that. Yeah, and I think it's called just one last statement here from me, as I always like to have the last word. Yeah, um, but not in the presence of Anil. Um, it is really the fact that it's called Test cricket because it tests everything, and it is the best analogy for what life throws at you. So it's played over five days. And for all the people who actually think that there are no results, I think no results can also produce some spectacular displays of bravery and everything that we saw. So they played four matches and the scoreline was 2-1 in India's favor. Uh, so India won two matches and, and Australia won one match. So therefore, India won this best of uh, four match series with one match drawn. Um, and they batted against adversity and where team multiple members of the team down, et cetera, et cetera. So if you ever know of an Indian, Pakistani or Sri Lankan or a South African or an Australian or a Kiwi or a Caribbean, West Indian guy, as we like to call them, please ask them about this particular achievement because the whole cricket world is celebrating, except if you're an Australian. Uh, So anyway, we will leave that, Anil. I think we should talk about the topic. I think it's very, very good that you brought that talk, that topic of Mohammad Siraj as well, because what also happened on the field there was that I think there were some few kind of racial comments that was also thrown at him in one of the matches where he had to actually had to complain to the officials. So that is an excellent segue into kind of your kind of journey, because I know that you were very much a promising cricketer in your school days. And tell us a bit more about that side of you, which most of us don't know. We all know that you were you were a chemical engineer and you were at Draper Labs. You garnered multiple 
kind of grants from NH and DARPA, et cetera, and then moved over to uh, L'Oreal and then now over at TDK Ventures as the investment director. Now tell us about kind of the part of, of you that most people don't appreciate. And let's get into the topic of kind of how our experiences shape us as people. Yeah, I mean, uh, <clears throat> look, I, I'll be honest. I, I don't think I was ever an amazing cricketer or anything like that. Uh, actually, I have a very good friend, um, Vishal Krishna. He's a he's one of the editors in uh, back home in India, and he he used to captain our team. And he always said, "Anil, you were just good enough to be in the team, but quite moderate enough, uh, or, or not not good enough to make it to the national side." Right? Uh, it was it was just at the Goldilocks zone uh, where uh, I, I kind of excelled when I played with ordinary players. But I kind of fizzled out when I <laughs> when I played with the real real guys, right? Um, so, uh, but but I think a lot of things uh, have shaped me up um, from cricket. Uh, I would even say if there's one thing I've learned in life, um, it's got to be from cricket. Um, or or I'll be even more sort of um, uh, explicit. Uh, I think everything I've learned in life is from cricket. The rest is just technical, right? It's just some subject matter stuff. And I think people, it's very easy to learn subject matter stuff because all it takes is hours. But the stuff that you learn from the game is uh, um, stuff that you never forget. Um, I'll give you one instance. Um, this was, uh, I think I was about um, 11 or 12 years old. Uh, I started playing cricket about nine. Um, and uh, I was pretty good at that time. Uh, you know, as you get older, you realize you you're, you're, you suck, right? Uh, because you start playing with the real players. Uh, but, but when I was 11, I was very, very good. And, um, and I was playing against this school uh, team, um, Bishop Cottons, back home in Bangalore. And uh, the Cotonians, as they called them, uh, they were usually uh, belonging to uh, uh, upper middle class slash rich rich kids, right? And um, so they, they kind of looked down upon people who are lower middle class or poor people. Uh, I kind of fit probably the lower middle class side, not poor uh, in Indian standards. Um, so... Um, and I was standing in the boundary on the, on the, on the fence, right? And one of these kids shouted, uh, you know, how, how people haze and, you know, they say stuff when they're sitting outside and they, they want to just throw you off balance, right? And, and one of the kids said, hey, hit that bugger. The kid next to him said, hey, actually hit that beggar. And, and that, it really kind of reminded me that, Okay, is this how rich people think? Um, and and it affected me in such a drastic way. I I really didn't expect it to take that much of an um, impact on my life. That um, I decided when I was leaving to the United States that I'll never let my parents ever ever think about money. And, 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 and it, it, it really was a, a product of that 
of that uh, interaction. And uh, I promised my dad, I'll take care of you. And, um, and uh, uh, my wife has been so supportive with me. Um, we, we actually, before us buying a house, we bought my parents a house. So for me, that, that kind of learning, uh, you don't get from some PhD, some degree, you know, I think that degree stuff is, it happens. It's good. You know, our teachers are great. We learn something we'll, we're ever grateful, but this kind of teaching that you, the, the game teaches you is, is far beyond. And I think I will carry that for the rest of my life. Yeah. And I think whenever we talk fondly about cricket, uh, I think it's, it's so much about, and whenever people say, um, I think you'll hear most people who follow cricket say cricket is a religion. And I think the reason for that is not so much about the fact that any other sport, it's better than any other sport. In fact, I love NFL and college football as much as I love cricket. Um, but it's really about the fact about the, the learnings that you actually take from playing the game and the learnings that you actually take from experiencing the game where nothing's ever given and you actually have to fight for every single thing in the game if you're a sportsman. And as an audience, I mean, you kind of live through that. If you're a fanatic fan, you actually live through that in the eyes of the athletes. And that's the best reality TV ever. And it's also the biggest life yeah, ever as well. And one more point, Arun, is that um, as a sportsman, the, there's a fundamental thing that you learn, right? Especially when you play competitive sports. Uh, I played competitive for, for about five, six years, you know, on the trot. Uh, as in playing with like real you know, state level, international level folks. Uh, I didn't make it there. I was just before behind those guys. Uh, but but what I realized was there were two things also, um, which again, influenced me even today on a daily basis. One is when you play with the best people, they get better over time. It's a little bit like wine. Um, they kind of just get better and better. You run harder, they just run harder. And, 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 and by the time you, the, the endurance, right, uh, of these people is so high that you will either have to just drop in there dead or you just have to get smarter. And that's one thing that I learned uh, even when I work. Um, not, I'm not saying, I'm not telling people to outwork or overwork or exhaust themselves. But the world is very large and there's a lot of people who work very hard. So if you say, oh, I want vacation, I want this, I want that, it's, you're good to nothing, really. It's, it's, you're not going to make it very big. You've got to be able to work hard. And, and I think that's something that I carry even today. Second one is loss. I think how do you, how do you, how are you a good loser is, is a very important thing, right? Um, good loser doesn't mean I want to shake hand and have a beer, okay? Good loser is you shake hand, you be a gentleman, and the next day you come in and you come in twice as hard, right? Uh, that's a good loser, uh, meaning you, you take the learning of what you did wrong and you really come hard at someone else. Um, and, and, and that I think really influenced me and, and, and I still, uh, you know, someone, uh, it's funny. I, uh, there was this global corporate venturing, um, uh, had this council that count that votes for top 
50 people in corporate venture capital in the world. Um, and um, they, they survey about 20,000 people across the world and they rank top 50. And uh, I knew I was in the top 50. And yesterday the rankings came out. I, I learned that I was number two. And the first thing that came to my mind was who's number one? And, 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 and I said, okay, how am I going to be the number one? And, and how do I change the landscape? How do I change that bar, right? Running faster. How do I just get that Delta moved away as much as I can? So it's also a very Indian parent <laughs> attitude because every time I got, I did really well in academics and as you probably have shared experiences, enough experiences, Anil, I think every time I came second, I think that the first question that my dad asked was who was first? And it's like that shapes your mentality to actually kind of push yourself to the hill. And we have a very, very different mentality, I think, with parents today, at least in the U.S. And especially, I I would argue, California is my experience as a parent. But so much of it is, oh, you showed up? Let's give you a trophy. Oh, Everybody should win. There are no, I mean, there are literally sporting leagues for kids, you know, where they're playing a sport for the first time or early on and they don't keep score and there are no winners. There are no losers. And that goes on. I mean, kindergarten, early ages, fine. Let's all just learn how to play the game. But as it advances, that, that mentality and that treatment continues so that we're coming up with these kids who literally they're in their professional lives and don't know how to accept or respond to criticism because they've been so coddled. And I, my perspective is that that's an American thing. I could be wrong. I, 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 yeah, I, but I, mean, I, I think, look, everything is, is important with context, right? Um, and uh, the context is, you know, I grew up, and I, look, I, when I came to the U.S., I had less than 200 bucks in my pocket, okay? Um, and I had a $2,000 debt to buy a suitcase, uh, buy, a, buy all these books that were expensive. I was like, well, you know, all these, you know, hardbound books, high-quality paper, why do you need it? That was the first question I asked. Why do you need this high-quality book? It's not like you're going to put, put it up on the price. Uh, you know, you're not going to do anything. You're going to read it. It's done, Right. So I was like, let's buy the cheap book from India. You know, it's the same content. Uh, Anyway, uh, I digress. But my point was, um, the context was that um, the loan I took had some 16% interest rate or so. Um, And, you know, I was really hard pressed when I came here. Uh, The first thing I thought was, crap, 25 bucks for the car ride, like the taxi ride from the airport. And tip? Who the hell gives tip? Why? Why should I tip this guy? He's doing his job, you know. So because the tip, the whatever that to twenty percent of that twenty-five, whatever the number is, right, five bucks, you know, basically that cut my bank by you know fifteen uh, percent, right? The, the rest of the plus interest. Yeah, the the le- rest of the money was less than one hundred and fifty, hundred and seventy bucks. So the context, right, from where we come from, uh, sets that. Uh, precedents where you just have to be really good. If you're mediocre, you just can't do much. But here, you know, when you have everything, like my son, I mean, the guy has everything, 
you know <laughs> he's like 15 months old and he's like a king you know uh so participation uh, all of that maybe maybe that's the that's the right way to think about it because you want to um ensure that you you play well uh, against everyone and so on and so forth. but context is everything but i agree with you uh it it might be kind of hard for people to get on uh but my 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 context was that i grew up lower middle class and second um i was competing against the best people if you truly want to be the best you got to learn how to lose because you will lose badly <laughs> so so that's i mean that's a phenomenal experience and i wish more more kids regardless of where they grow up had that experience but when you came from that mindset in a country that in and and a society and culture that embraces hard work the way that you were raised did you did you have this preconceived notion and was it realized if so that americans are soft that were lazy no um it depends on who you hang out with um i think um if you are hanging around with like those athletes that i was talking about right um they play hard too and they're tough and they it's funny they're a little bit like um um uh, some of my european friends were were saying uh, americans are soft on the outside hard on the inside um that's new yorkers well uh, yeah maybe uh but europeans are hard on the outside but very soft on the inside uh and i i think there's some truth to that of course these are all you know pro- uh, stereotypes and and you know they they don't you know apply to everyone but the point is um I think a lot of Americans um are extremely bright and if you hang out with the right people uh you will compete like exactly how you would compete back home. In fact, they might be a little little more um uh intense. Yeah, so, to be honest, I think I think coming from a very similar culture both of us, I think both of us are South Indians just separated by one state border and 350 kilometers between both our hometowns uh in a way i think we we came to the united states not because it was easy but because we could actually show that we could excel in a given area and we wanted to kind of build that framework around that and therefore be that so i think the my common thing and let's let's kind of maybe uh, and let me actually start anil and, and maybe you can kind of lead us there so there are some very interesting stereotypes that actually come from right because when you're coming from india you're always prepared for what you should be encountering like for example the american high commission in the my hometown of chennai or madras as it was called i still call it madras they actually have sessions for kids who actually get get kids to grad school or who actually go there and who get a visa so they basically hold a session information session and simple things like what you're told and i'm sure most people will actually have their accent like paint and they will they will kind of change that when they grow up and when they mix with with more kind of like uh, more american folks etc because we have a very strong kind of intonation which interestingly i find us indians try to kind of become more like we kind of tend to speak like the people around whereas if you see what struck me was how some of the europeans especially if you're italian or spanish they would never give up or never change the way they would speak 
to anybody else outside. You have to make the effort. And I think that was a big stereotype where I think while me and people who are looking like me were trying to kind of fit into the culture and you kind of try to fit into the culture, you actually found these other people who actually were not. And that was like, that affects you because at a subliminal level, you're thinking, oh, why aren't they trying to fit in? But then they're almost as talented and as good as you in your program that you do, that you're working on. And then you realize, oh, that's different. And then I had a very different experience where there was a very... Let me put it this way, Arun. Indian accent is not the hottest accent in the world. Okay? It is not. Yeah. Pretty bad. (laughs) Yeah, but we still try to actually make it and sound more American or... or, I do. Yeah. Of course I do. Yeah. Um, I, I sound different when I speak to you and I sound different when I speak to her. Yeah. I sound different when I speak to my wife um, So, uh, and my in-laws, you know, the white part of my family. Um, look, I, I think um, I agree with you. I think we um, grew up in a place where uh, we were taught to blend in, uh, especially, you know, I can say more about Bangalore. Uh, you go to Bangalore, everyone tries to speak to you in English, even though they have no idea how to speak English. Um, and, uh, and same thing, they do that with North Indians, you know, they speak in Hindi, um, and, and their Hindi is probably like the worst. I mean, some of them speak atrocious Hindi, like they make very, very basic mistakes. Like me, I, 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 I still don't know Hindi. Like I play cricket here in, in Boston and, uh, uh, most of my teammates speak Hindi, but I have to converse with them in English because I I have this terrible accent, but my point is. Um, we tend, we grew up in a place where we were taught to be more uh, empathetic towards other people because I, who wants to say, huh, pardon, please. No one wants to do that. Uh, so I just want, I'm going to just want to roll my R's, speak like this. And it's so much easier to be like this uh, than say, hello, how are you? I'm going to come today. You know, it's, it's very difficult. By the to- way, me and Anil never speak like that to each other. I'm, ju- I'm just clarifying. I think we just speak well, to each other when I, we just really get upset with each other. But you know, not when it started hitting me, I used to be at TA and um, I remember this guy, uh, he's a friend now, Chris McLaughlin. Um, he was in the class and uh, he's actually slightly older than me because he had more experience. He had worked in like oil companies and he had come for grad school, uh, undergrad. Um, and, 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 you know, I was, I think I was teaching thermodynamics or something like that. And, uh, God knows how I did because I, I don't remember any of it now, but, um, Chris, you know, kind of pulled me aside after the class is like, man, no one can understand your accent. <laughs> like you gotta, you gotta roll with the punches here. Uh, just, just let's go have a beer. And then, you know, we talked and, um, and slowly I learned that there are certain words like rectified you don't use. Uh, in the United States, <laughs> uh, and and you you use simpler words, um, and you choose a single syllable word whenever when there's uh, an option between a single or a double syllable, uh, and stuff like that, right? Uh, and of course, after I met uh, my wife, I kind of uh, she started teaching me how to you know say certain things, how to not say certain things. I still struggle with it, uh, but I it was a certain um shocker for me when i met some italians and french people 
um, because for them that accent is cool and and you know it's a uh, uh, they can go to a bar and I'm sure they'll have a lot of people close by to them uh, right uh, and, and oh who's that person the accent you know and, and there's that that thing going but if you talk with an Indian accent I'm pretty sure people will be like okay uh, this is that sambar guy I'm gonna stay away from this guy. <laughs> I think there's I think there's also though there's uh, speaking as the American here that there's sort of this expectation that we're Americans and especially if you come here let alone anywhere else in the world you should assimilate to our culture and it's only recently that people are starting to say you can still be an American and maintain a connection with your culture and 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 to the point of the the Italians and the French and and some of the Romance languages, I personally, it's easier for me to understand those accents because I marginally speak Spanish. But in my world travels, all that people seem to to care about is that you try. So now I'm going to be really embarrassed because of your Hindi situation, where they're like, "Oh God, just don't, just don't even try, just just save us all the embarrassment." So I try and speak Spanish when I'm in Mexico or Spain or a Spanish speaking country, but now I'm, <laughs> am I doing myself a disservice if I'm speaking so poorly or is the effort enough? I actually think, uh, go on, Nanil. No, I, th- I think, again, uh, you, you, you deal with empathy first, correct? So um, I think effort is, is more than enough. Yeah. Uh, I I don't even expect people to be empathetic. I I just expect people to understand, right? Understanding our position, uh, and and that's totally fine. If they are they want to be empathetic, even better. Yeah. Go have a beer. I I personally think that the most empathy that you can show to a person of a different culture who doesn't look like you comes from actually learning how to say their name, because I think it actually goes a long way in just establishing that personal connection with people because you can just completely stay away from that and refer to them in first person like and and completely go let go of their of calling them by their name but i think just understanding how they pronounce it even though you can't ever say it uh in certain situations i mean there are names that i can't say it in in other other cultures in other uh nationalities etc but just putting in the effort to at least learn how they say it and then saying that i can't roll the r is it okay if i call you this and they actually put up with the same amount of thing that that i actually had to put up when i was called aaron for a wrong time and then i had to tell people that no i'm called arun and uh, because you has a very different way of 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 pronunciation in in the indian culture compared to kind of the the other languages etc so um i'm definitely guilty of that i i shy away from if i feel like i'm gonna butcher somebody's name i mean their name is so personal and that's and and you're right arun and i i need to get better about that because i will i will refer to hey how are you instead of taking that it, that embarrassing step to say you know what i really struggle with your name can you help me out give me a cheat sheet here and yeah. and, and so that's my i i need to work on that yeah. well my name is always a conversation it's uh go um, on say it say your name say it <laughs> speak it <laughs> my full name is anil kumar harappanahalli achut 
So um, I'm going to call you a Neil if that's okay with you. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. I mean, actually, I have my PhD advisor, uh, Shashi Murthy, to thank you for this uh, because he told me at some point, I don't remember when, uh, he said, I think your name is too long. <laughs> you should really shorten it. Take the first part of your first name and last part of your last name. Uh, I think you'll do a lot of justice to a lot of people. And and professionally, it'll be easier for you to go by Anil Achuta. And and he's the one who gave me the idea to call myself Anil Achuta. And I'm now Anil Achuta. And that's it. But how do you, I mean, I had a, a board member of a company that I was working for. Um, and a, this older, much older gentleman told me that I should change my name because it's unprofessional. And I almost turned back and I said, well, you should change your face because it's ugly. I mean, that, that hurt my feelings. I'm like, so how, how does, I, I appreciate from, from the, from the lazy perspective and, and I appreciate the shortcut on your name, but how does that feel? I mean, that's part of you. Feels great. Um, I think again, uh, remember empathy first, first thing, right? Um, uh, you, you want to, you want to stick to society and you want to embed in, in a certain society. Um, there are certain things you sacrifice, right? Um, and, you know, f- frankly speaking, I was always Anil Kumar H.A. back home in India, okay? We, we have initials. The Harpanahalli Achuta never came up, okay? Achuta is my dad's first name. Who cares? Uh, Harapanahali is this is a state or, or not a state? It's a, it's a it's a village that my family you know hails from. Who cares, right? I mean, uh, it's you know it's like I've never been to Harapanahali ever in my life. I don't even probably if you give me a map, I won't even know how where to, where where it sits, right? So, uh, but the problem is they ask you to anglicize your name when you write in the passport. They say first mm-hmm. name, middle name, last name, and I'm like. First name, hmm? okay. And then I was like, where do I put Harpanali? My dad is like, uh, middle, last? Just put it in the last, you know? My dad was like, yeah, just do it. And then, okay, we just put it in the last and it became my name. And it's just so silly. But my actual first name is Anil. My last name is Kumar. That's that's actually what my name is. So this is where I think I have a request for our other Asian brothers given that most Indians don't recognize that India is in Asia, uh, but still it's, it's part of Asian continent. And uh, is that I was actually startled when I first came here that there would be, there was actually another kind of fantastic, fantastic, most intelligent Chinese student in my biophysics program uh, at, at Ohio state. He was so good. And he always went by his first name, which was Wei Hong. Like he, we just called it. He made it, made sure that everybody called it the same name. But every other person, and that's why I absolutely love him, and I still remember him to this day, even though we're not in touch. But then I actually thought it was really, really weird. And once I had a conversation with him, and I said, "Why are a lot of the people with 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 Asian, like Chinese and uh, heritage, uh, or Chinese immigrant students?" change their name from their Asian names rather than telling people how to say it 
Why are they actually changing their name to an American? It's, Arun, it's exactly the reason why I I kind of I'm Anil Achuta. It's probably easier, and you want to get along, right? You get on to business. Um, I actually have a contrarian view for for yours um, uh, about saying a name. I, I don't think there's anything in a name. It's just a thing, you know. Um, I think what what's important is what you do, right? Mm-hmm. And how you act. So the actions. Uh, speak a lot louder than words. So for me, in a name, if people call me anal, people have done that. I'm like, whatever, fine. You know, let's do business, right? That's 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 how I I think about it. Uh, but I can imagine how it can offend someone. Uh, okay. And empathetic. I'm I'm very sensitive about my name because it's it's JoJo. It's it's too technically, and I'm in the process of remedying this for database reasons but it's tip- it's technically jo space jo and so a lot of people will just default to joe and and i'm kind of like nah, no i'm twice the man as any joe but oh but i do have one contact one person that she's a you know does my hair she's done my hair for 10 years and she calls me joe and at this point, it's been so long. I don't have the heart to tell her that my name is Jojo. <laughs> because is- you believe that she's going to mess up your hair if you correct her. That's why. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Retribution aside. But the, I mean, that's very personal to me. So I, I I, respect people for being attached to their names. I certainly am. And I... I I, I I see both sides. I see going along to get along and, and it's what you do, but I also see your name is your identity um, to, to some degree. And, and No, what you do is your identity. See, that's... Okay, so <laughs> I, 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 I actually think we have highlighted a very important issue. Like, it, the most important thing that underlies both is about treat people with empathy, understand what the other person wants. Anil might want to know about what you do. Jojo might actually want to be have her name pronounced twice or once with Jojo being her name. <laughs> well, you're not empathetic at all. That's exactly my point. That's exactly the point that I want to make. Be empathetic, pronounce people the names the right way. And I think that is the best way to move forward. I think what you brought up there, actually, that's that's one important point that we wanted to make anyway. Thanks for actually having a very lengthy discussion about that. Then coming to the point about what you do, you actually have a very personal experience that you want to share about how when you finished your master's and then your or PhD and then you actually started at Draper Labs, you started off and then you had some very, I mean, it, it hit you really hard, right? So walk us through that. And I'm not going to break, break it for everybody else. You're going to do it. Walk us through how you believe that type of inequity actually came into play and how that made you feel and how you, with your resilient nature, went about correcting that, Anil. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about, but... (laughs) (laughs) Your salary. Uh, Remember when you... Oh, yeah. So, um, well, look, uh, I think started with... um, I first of all, I was pretty young when I graduated with my PhD, correct? Um, uh, and young can sometimes also go with naive. Um, and 
uh, I was technically strong, but very, very weak in just generally business side or just generally other things, right? Right. Um, so I, I started as a postdoc and, um, and uh, I, I did really well in the first year at Draper. Uh, the, the second year, uh, I was given a promotion to a senior scientist and, um, I, uh, I got a good raise and, um, for, I was in Tampa, Florida and, and for that place, it was very good what I was making. And it so happened that I, I requested a transfer to Boston. And, um, and uh, the transfer happened, but, uh, I was doing extraordinary work and, uh, I was winning grants. Uh, you know, we won this, uh, I was a contributor in, uh, in, a uh, organ on a chip grant that was about 25 or $30 million from DARPA. Uh, I had two NIH grants, so on and so forth. Uh, I mean, you don't have, you know, 26, 27 year olds having NIH grants, and that's pretty prestigious, um, uh, even for the academic world, right? Um, so I excelled in it, but I just didn't see anything happening uh, on my on my salary side. And I realized I, I spoke to my brother-in-law, who happens to be Canadian. He's also an immigrant, um, uh, but, but he's very, very sharp, much smarter than I am. Uh, and, and he told me, uh, I asked him, hey, w- my salary never got adjusted to Boston. Um, and, and he's like, what do you mean? He said, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I transferred and they just didn't do even a cost of living adjustment on my salary. Um, and he told me, he said, no, 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 that's bullshit because you, they should really, you know, if they hire someone from a global pool of talent, um, you, you should really be remunerated, re- remunerated as though you're a, an external person who is coming in and so on and so forth. Uh, but didn't see that happen. Um, and, and I quickly realized that something has to change. Uh, and, um, and slowly I started noticing little things, right? The first thing that I noticed was, I mean, maybe I was reading too much into it, but the first thing I noticed was, um, you know, I also always wear t-shirt and jeans to work, uh, because I'm the tech guy and I'm okay and blah, blah. And uh, people weren't taking me very seriously. Uh, and, and I came to my wife and said, hey, it's, something's wrong. I think, I think in, uh, people are not taking me seriously. She said, no, no, you should, you should really wear good clothes, buy better clothes. Uh, I was like, okay, great. Uh, I, you know, I changed my wardrobe and now I had Brooks Brothers and all these brands that, that people wear, uh, professional people, so-called. And then it so happened that uh, one day there was this uh, uh, gentleman, uh, a big six foot two guy, um, is a general, one of the army guys, right? Draper is a defense company. Um, he came in and he was touring the lab and he's like, uh, he looked around and, you know, I'm short, I'm five foot five on a good day with spiked hair, five foot six. Um, and, uh, and this dude comes in and, and he says, who, who runs this lab? He, he was touring, right? In front of everyone. Okay, this is, there are like 15 people in action. I said, I run the lab. 
said, stop joking around. I know you're the undergrad. And I was like, no, no, I'm not joking. I'm actually the guy who runs this lab. And he wouldn't take me seriously at all. And I realized, okay, there's something really wrong. And, and that's when I grew a beard. So if I shave even today, I take off about 10 years of my age because I have a chubby face, baby face. Um, and I've never shaved. I've never shaved since ever like fully shaved. So it's been what, 12, 10, 10, 10 years or so. Yeah. A decade. I've just had this beard and, um, slowly I started noticing things. And finally I met my, uh, former boss, Brian McLaughlin, uh, who Arun knows really well. He was no. uh, with the wardrobe change, with the, <laughs> with the beard change, uh, with the, uh, the grants and all that. Um, he really made me put, put together a package, like a file, uh, and, and submit to management, uh, for a, a better salary. And only then my salary increased for about 20%. Um, although in the interim, I found out the guys who are working for me were making more money than me. And they didn't have any of the credentials that I have. It's, and it's always, I think this is, this is true for everyone and, but it's harder to catch up, especially if a company knows, and it, it and I don't, I don't think it's any more malicious, malicious than, Hey, we've got some cost savings. Is it the right thing to do? No, but they're saving money. And so that speaks to their bottom line. And so anything after you've, you've accepted a position is you've got to claw back for it and you've got to work twice as hard. And I've seen this a lot. I've worked a lot in placements in neurotech. And I've seen on multiple occasions that you're hiring for three positions at the three, at the same company at the same time. Three offers will go out. And nine times out of 10, they're the exact same offers. And for equally qualified people, nine times out of 10, the men will negotiate and the women don't. And so... It, that's a problem because then every year at review time, it's percentage based. Yeah, and so yeah. if you're starting down lower, you're never going to catch up. So mm. it's, it's uncomfortable, but it's incumbent upon everyone. This is an opening salvo. This is, they've invested the time in you to go through X number of interviews to get everybody on board. They want you. You've got to take that moment of confidence and say, they want me. I'm worth it. They've offered me this, so they're willing to pay maybe X percent more. And it's it's something I personally have struggled with, but fortunately, I've been able to coach other people through it. Um, hopefully, it makes some difference. But that's I think that's part of what you said about being young and not just in age, but in in sort of some inexperience. So if that's yeah, one absolutely. thing I can add, I, I, it was complete inexperience, right? Uh, I, I just didn't know. I've gotten so much better now. Uh, well, now that I negotiate a lot more with frequency comes a little more savviness, right? Um, and confidence. It's, and confidence, right? Um, and, and one thing I realized was it was not at all any malicious intent from, from, from the company side. What was very apparent was I didn't ask. <laughs> I was just terrified to ask. And, and there's this, sense of weird again it's probably a very indian thing 
like you, you don't talk about your um, you, you don't ask for like money. You never yeah, I, I would raise you don't talk about money. It's yeah. it's not a conversation. Yeah, you just don't. It's very bad. And 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 actually, my I'm so glad that I had Brian help me on this. Actually, another person helped me a lot. Also, was uh, Laura Major. She was very good. She was like ahead of her pack, right? Uh, she was group. She made group leader when she was 28, uh, and she just wrote a book actually recently on robotics. I mean, she was like a rock star at that time. So I kind of wanted to ask her, like, how do you get into these positions? Like, you're all your group members are like 45 plus, and uh, you're so young, and you're able to achieve so much, so many things at a young age, and manage such a big group. Uh, I'm pretty sure her salary was ridiculously good uh, and, compared to mine, at least at that time. Um, and um, and she taught me a lot of little nuances of how to present and, and all of that. And Brian finally kind of put the nail in the coffin. He really helped me. So I think. All right. So now you're. Oh, go ahead, Aaron. So, so now you're in Laura's position and you're the one with all of this tremendous accomplishment, which, which we'll do a better job of outlining than we did. <laughs> but so now you're in that position and people may be too shy to ask, but I'll ask for them. What, what advice do you have for them? How do, how do they best represent themselves, whether they're new in America or new in the, in, in a new country, how, how did you help them get the most bang for their buck, whether in leadership or dollars or both? Um, in terms of compensation or in terms of career development, because those are two different things. I, I would say, take your pick because they're both relevant. Uh, I, I'm sure I can answer both. Um, I mean, on the compensation side, I, I really think you should try to get the biggest base salary first because the only way to get a better base salary is to change your job or to leave. Um, uh, because people have quotas and they just are, it's very difficult to kind of do a 25% jump inside company, but it's very easy to do a 50% jump when you actually change jobs. Um, so that's, you know, on the comp side, right? Start, try to get the best base salary as possible. Don't be greedy. Uh, know your worth, do your research, you know, all that stuff that, that recruiters often say, and they're, they're usually right. Um, and uh, on the career development side, um, that's a little more involved, right? Uh, because I think starting with an end in mind is, is very important, uh, but also giving... Uh, room for exploration because you know it's like this difference between arranged marriage and love marriage right sometimes you fall in love with the person you're married with um and and sometimes you fall in love with something that you actually do and you realize you actually love it a lot more uh venture was like that with me um you know i i didn't even know what venture capitalists did and uh for a very long time uh, but until I actually did it or helped someone who was doing it, Imran uh, Eba at APVC uh, yeah. was was the guy who told me first time. And I remember 2013, we were having lunch um, at the Catalyst uh, on on Broadway. 
And um, he told me, hey, Anil, I think you should really try venture because it seems like you're, you have this knack of looking at these opportunities in the right way, but you're kind of rough around the edges. You should, you should really hone your skills. And I said, wow, if you're not saying this, maybe I've got something. Uh, and no one had ever told me because when the people, when, when, you, when you're in an environment in a company, you get boxed very quickly, right? And, and the first thing that happened to me was, um, uh, oh, he's, he's the polymers guy. And I was like, no, 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 I'm not the polymers guy. No, 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 please. And then, oh, he's the microfluidics guy. I'm like, no, 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 I don't know microfluidics. I just came from the microfluidics lab and happened to do some stuff with polymers. And, and suddenly they're like, oh, he's the organ on a chip guy. And it just kept like, they, they like to put labels on people. So uh, for me, that's why, you know, just working backwards was that having an end in mind, meaning where do you want to go um, is very important. If you don't know that, uh, don't be afraid, but try to find out. And don't you ever say, that the world is too large. I don't know what to choose. That's the worst answer you can ever give. And you'll turn me off in a, in a second, right? It's like, it's the, it really is because it shows indecisiveness. Uh, what you need to do is to try, right? Uh, fall in love, do something. Uh, if you don't do it and you keep saying, oh, okay, I can do something that, like you'll never land, right? So that would be my advice. My advice would be is to keep, an open heart about exploration, but also try with something, you know, some goal in mind where you want to land. In fact, my, my boss asked me recently, like, where do you want to be in five years? And, and I knew I, I gave him an answer. I don't know if I'm, I'm going to be there, but I knew the answer, even though I had not thought about it. So subconsciously, I'm always thinking about it. It so happens. So Anil, given that you were people were trying to box you and you kind of broke, broke that in your own way, um, et cetera. I think coming back to how you ended up on the business side, right? So your none of what your formal education was never in business of science or business, just science and technology for, for a broad label for what venture capital really is, is a business of science and innovation. Um, tell us about that, how, what kind of, barriers that you actually had to overcome and how much of that was more self-inflicted uh talking about biases talking about potentially kind of blind alleys from a personal perspective as well as in terms of biases that other people might actually have had do you want to kind of maybe talk us through a bit about that experience and i think it's more valuable i think it's more valuable for everybody but it's more valuable and insightful to hear about that especially because you and I share the the same skin color. I think it, it's useful just to talk about that experience, but go on. Yeah, I mean, I think the, I mean, uh, I'll speak about barriers after it. I'll tell the story because I think the story is far more uh, enjoyable to hear because it's true. <laughs> yeah, and this is why I keep saying we Indians, especially South Indians, love to tell stories all the time. That's exactly how we roll. Uh, sometimes it's a, it's a long answer, but I'm sure you will do a much better job than me. Well, let's try. Okay. Um, well, I mean, the my first foray, uh, again, first thing I, I realized when I started my 
professional career after my PhD was that there was a lot of technical people around me who were the absolute best in what they were doing, but they were given management roles. Unfortunately, they landed there and they hated it. A lot of them hated it. Uh, and hence, they did a very crappy job of commercializing those technologies. Uh, in fact, they were so boxed that they thought that there was only one way to commercialize the technology. Uh, and funnily, they still think that. Um, and when I talk to them, they, they still think the same way. Um, so I said, you know what? I think I need to go learn some business. Um, so I went to B-School part-time uh, while I was a consultant for GSK. And uh, I had two NIH grants at one shot. Talk about running and running without being exhausted. Um, uh, so um, I, I learned some some interesting business things, uh, you know, uh, learning how to put words into concepts. I didn't know what some cost meant. You know, when people use these buzzwords, I didn't know what it meant. So now I understand, etc. Um, but really, I think the once I finished my uh, my uh, MBA, uh, Draper started getting more comfortable that I could be in the business office of Draper, and I made you know the the jumps that I talked about with Brian and etc. Uh, that got me into the business office. Um, kind of got me towards the business side, but I very quickly realized that it was not the real deal makers or anything like that because I'd already had my uh, consulting experience with Imran and the co uh, and, and, and his friends. So I, I realized, okay, that's what I want to do. Um, so I, I, I said at one point uh, I was getting very frustrated with Draper because I wouldn't, I, I just didn't know how to commercialize their stuff. Um, and um, uh, the CEO had changed and I, I needed a change. Um, I, I spoke to Juan Pablo uh, and Juan Pablo is another partner at APBC and Juan Pablo gave me a generous introduction to, uh, to a guy at J&J. Um, <laughs> I went to the interview. Uh, I remember this vividly. Uh, we went for a walk in Menlo Park to Pete's Coffee. Uh, I'd worn a, a, a blazer and he said, get the blazer out. As soon as I went in, I was like, okay, I'll take it out. And he, we, we went for a walk and he asked me a bunch of questions and we talked and that's great. You know, he really liked me and um, we came out to the office. He said, Anil, I really like you. I'm going to make you an offer. I'll pay you X amount of dollars for a week. I'm going to leave you, will you quit your job? I said, what kind of a question is this? I've been there at Draper Labs for five and a half years and you're asking me for a one week contract you're asking me to quit my job and the prestige that I have, I have grants for God's sake. Uh, and, and he said, he looked right into my eyes. He said, you've come to Silicon Valley. You better learn how to behave here. That's what he said. He said, you better learn how to behave when you come here and you want a job here. You learn, you should do this uh, kind of thing. And I said, okay, I need one hour time. I ran, I ran to Stanford Park Hotel. That's where I was put up. And I was outside and frantically staring. And my wife, Rachel, she came, she, she'd gone to her friend's house. She came back and she's like, you look like a ghost. I said, well, 
Ken told me that he's going to pay me this much money for a week contract. He's like, she, she, she basically said week. <laughs> I was like, yeah. She said, take it. I was like, Oh my God, I can't believe this. You're saying, take it. I said, what about the money? What about this? What about that? It's like, don't worry. You're miserable. You need to leave. So I left. Um, and that one week turned into three weeks, three weeks turned into three months, three months turned into six months. And unfortunately, Ken left. He started uh, a company called Grail. I don't know if many of you know, it got bought for some six billion plus recently. Uh, and um, so Ken left, I was stranded. I came back to Boston and I started, uh, I was thinking of starting a company by myself, a neuromodulation company. And, um, and I hooked up with this guy called Mario, Mario Romero Ortega, uh, nice guy, uh, very genuine person. Uh, and we, we thought of starting a company. Uh, we had a couple of ideas and, um, two months down the line, my mom fell ill. And she was basically very ill, as in like in the deathbed kind of thing. And I I told Mario, I said, dude, I, I really can't do this because I am like working nonstop and I have no money and I really need to focus on, on getting a job. And Mario understood and he was such a nice guy about it. Um, uh, and, you know, it's a, he's a delightful person. And anyway, um, I... I um, um, I had to settle and take up a job. Uh, and, and I didn't know anything about skincare. I didn't know anything about consumer products. I took a job at L'Oreal. Uh, my boss, Charbel, who I remain very good friends with, uh, basically gave me a chance. Uh, and there, that is when I actually got into the business side of things, actual business side, when they started looking out for opportunities for M&A, things like that. And, um, and uh, I think the key for me was uh, what my dad says, you know, uh, give, but don't expect. Right. Uh, I, I, I kind of kept giving, I kept giving and giving and giving. Um, I, I, I helped the M&A group. I helped the, uh, their CVC group that didn't exist. Um, and uh, externally, I, I spent a lot of time helping people, helping startups. I signed up for Mass Challenge. I was helping uh, the accelerator. I was helping uh, VCs. I was making market maps after market maps, just sharing and saying, hey, here's my insight. What do you think? Uh, I remember sharing stuff with uh, uh, many of our friends, Imran and, uh, and, and other friends. Uh, heck, I even learned how to play ping pong to become friends with VCs. Uh, one of my very good friends now, Martin Heidecker, uh, he's the head of Boringer Ingelheim Ventures. Um, I just wanted to be friends with him. I literally just, I didn't want to ask him for a job, but I just want to be friends with him to learn how he thinks. So I learned play, how to play ping pong and actually got so good at it. I have like a personal racket now. Like I play with it. Um, uh, and um, uh, I never expected a job, uh, but it so happened that um there was a point where uh, I was randomly, uh, I landed in Bombay airport uh, uh, about 2018 timeframe. I met this guy I'd never seen for 16 years. Um, um, Adarsh uh, was a classmate of mine since eighth grade. And he said, Hey, I'm moving to Boston. And um, 
I was like, oh, okay, cool. Come over. Uh, and I said, where do you have a job? He said, St. Gobain Ventures. I was like, damn it. Everyone's getting into venture and I'm not able to get in. Like I spent seven damn years trying to get in. Right. And um, I said, okay, well, what does dad say? Give, but don't expect. So I said, okay, I'll introduce him to every single person that I know in venture. I introduced him to all the life science people. I introduced him to all the tech people. Uh, so I went above and beyond. And finally, um, one day, Adarsh had gone to GCBI uh, or the, the award I just got yesterday. Uh, he had gone to GCBI and he met this French dude, uh, Nicolas Savage, who was trying to uh, start a, a CVC fund called TDK Ventures from TDK. Um, and I'm like, what? Japanese fund? French guy? That doesn't make any sense. Uh, I was like, uh, it's probably is going to be a joke. And uh, others said, hey, I referred him to you. Uh, and and one day later, I get a phone call. And Nicola, my boss, calls me. And uh, I think that's, uh, it was such an amazing time for me because I'd worked so hard for it. Uh, and, uh, finally I landed in an actual business role, which brings me to the end of that story is from technical to business. It was a long, long ride for me. Uh, I'm still learning, but, um, I think we have a real good start at TDK Ventures. We've invested in 12 companies now. I've seen, seen about 1500 of them in the last 19 months and, uh, we have three exits. Uh, I personally have two, one M&A and one IPO. And uh, I think we're on a rocket ship. Dude, thank you so much for sharing that. I think I think more than just espousing or just underlining in bold italics um, about what the messages are, I think you just gave us a very, very good uh, kind of reflection of your personal reflection of your experiences and how various things that we wanted to talk about kind of in a very informal way about biases and and inclusion and diversity and how that actually impacts us and impacts our life and everything else i think it's been a fantastic fantastic conversation anil and i think i hope everybody else who listens to this actually just goes back to the to the to the lessons that you have outlined in the three segments uh, with respect to cricket and your early experience with respect to kind of how you kind of got in uh, into your role at Draper and then how you kind of rose through the ranks and then finally with respect to how you got into business. And I think I've shared many, many, many memories with you and we have both professional and personal memories. And I think I will close out with one very, very important reflection. I think the way... One thing that will always stay with me uh, is how we smuggled a design when we actually couldn't come up with a design for what a magnetic stimulation should actually look like of nerve. I think uh, you and I kind of borrowed an idea, which is a very South Indian kind of lower middle class within quotes kind of family idea, which is stealing how our mom's golden bangles would look like and actually putting that as the evidence of what a magnetic stimulation around a nerve would actually look like. And I think that's there on YouTube for everybody else to see. And 
maybe we'll put a link to that in the show notes so that you can actually see if you can spot the gold bangle in there. But I think oh yes, we will. Those are some special, special, special memories, Anil. Thank you for that, and thanks for taking the time to talk to us uh, here. Thank you for having me here. I mean, I think it was a pleasure. Um, I, I, you think? I, okay. Yeah. No. No. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I I hope that in my long winded stories, people can find some. Uh, some ray of hope because um, I think pretty much most of the things are hopeless, right? <laughs> it's like you—you kind of veer, you circuitously veer your way through, and there's no—it seems like there's no rhyme or reason for anything. And suddenly, out of thin air, people come in your life and they give you a little bit of that small break, and suddenly everything changes. Uh, I think the real moral of that story is that um you can you know uh, like as churchill said you know uh, plans are nothing planning is everything right so you have to plan for something but it, it's very difficult to have it exactly executed uh but what is important is to continue the the fight and you have to keep going at it um and uh hopefully you land in the right right spot well, thank you, and 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 please keep doing epic stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely, epic. That's, and, that's and, epic. And, 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 and as Nicola kind of put it in that award uh, text there, uh, in terms of his notes, I think fire of the you have actually led fire of the ten investments that TDK had actually made in the last eighteen months or so, and of that you already explained what the outcome was of two of those. So fantastic, keep rocking, and uh, and cheers to you. Cheers, man. Thanks. The clips are officially owned and is a property of Scraps, a brand jointly owned by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Blatt. No reproduction of content should be undertaken without the permission. Sainthan Chandran was the editor and our soundtrack was by Acetad. And we'll be back soon with another installment of Scraps, which is just Sparks. Spell backwards. It really is that simple to remember. Yeah, 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 yeah.